Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and his Dan mentioned we're beginning a new series today. You know, I want to ask the question, who doesn't want to make a powerful impression? Who doesn't want with their life to make a powerful impression? We're going through a political season, and certainly there are many politicians in this political year who would love to make that. We also know that there are movie stars who fight every season for that. In fact, we're in the summer season when all the blockbusters come out and there's tremendous competition of who's going to make the most powerful impression in the theaters around our country. Products of every kind spend millions of dollars advertising in every conceivable way to get it. A powerful impression. Wow, what a pizza! probably saw the commercial of the monk who breaks his vow of silence and walks up to the mountaintop, gives his life away to exclaim this powerful impression that a thicker crust and some extra cheese and some tomato sauce has made on his life. Well, I have to confess, I've never had pizza do that to me, but I have had that experience over ribs. (laughs) I have a serious confession to make. I love ribs. No, no, you don't understand. I really, really love ribs. Some years ago, Stu Weber and I were doing a family life conference in Memphis, Tennessee. We finished the conference and everybody left the hotel and the night before we had spotted a little rib place right down the street. And so we decided to take our wives there. And everything was somewhat uneventful. As you can imagine, we were tired after three days of of teaching, but uh, we sat down and I bit into my ribs about the same time that Stu bit into his, and wow, I would swear in that moment I saw Elvis. (laughs) I mean, these weren't just ribs. These were real ribs of a kind I've never tasted before. It was love at first bite. And I want you to know I was convinced then and still am convinced that in that moment, I discovered the center of the rib universe. (laughs) Several months later, I was so enthusiastic that I took the entire staff to Memphis to eat there. No, I really did. And while we were there, I must confess that I used them, unashamedly, I used them to pressure the management there to bring this rib establishment to Little Rock. I gathered all the staff, brought out the manager and said, this will work in my city. (laughs) And now my prayers (laughs) have been answered beyond my wildest dreams because Corky's is coming to Little Rock. (laughs) And it's not just coming to Little Rock, it's coming just down the street (laughs) for me. I'm talking about a half slab throw, preferably dry, down the street. I mean, it's within walking distance, coffee break distance to me and my staff. 
And for the last several months, I've driven by there every so often just to mark the progress of the construction. Sometimes when it was slow, I'd roll down my window and scream at the construction workers. <laughs> Hurry up! I've got to have this by at least July the 4th. And I've learned recently that Joe Klein, remember Joe Klein, the basketball player for the University of Arkansas, that he's a major investor in this new establishment. And I just want to say publicly here, Joe, I love you, man. <laughs> I love you. Thanks for bringing Corky's to town. That's the kind of powerful impression it's made. Now, you know, some people make powerful impressions like that. People make impressions like that. I hope you're a person who has a desire to make a powerful impression. But Howard Hendricks once described the most exciting lay teacher he'd ever been involved with. It was an 86-year-old woman in the city of Dallas. And I want to read what he said about her in Howard Hendricks style. He said, the last time I saw her on planet Earth was at one of those aseptic Christian parties. We were sitting there looking pious when she walked in and said, well, Hendricks, I haven't seen you in a long time. What's the five best books you've read in the last year? She was 83 on her last trip to the Holy Land. She went there with a group of NFL players. One of my most vivid memories of her is seeing her out in front yelling back at these football hunks, come on, get with it. She died in her sleep at her daughter's home in Dallas. Her daughter told me that just before she died, she had written out her goals for the next 10 years. Wow, what a woman. We're gonna look this morning at a church that made a powerful impression on the first century. It's a church whose letter to it contains some of the most wonderful descriptions of a church anywhere in the New Testament. It was a church of the powerful impression. In fact, after reading over the opening chapter, which uh, we will examine in, in detail this morning, the best summation I could give is the title I've put on the outline. Wow, what a church. From our standpoint, 20 centuries later, as we open this letter, you can't help but feel a special kinship with this group of believers. You know, if you look at the first verse, they began their church with three pastors too. It says, Paul and Savanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now here are these three men who had settled in there for a period of time and helped found this body. And occasionally as you read through the rest of the New Testament, one of them would go back and pastor there for a while. And they were constantly communicating with this young church of believers. But they began with three guys. They had a team ministry. And around that team ministry, they built this church. Acts 17 tells us that the church was made up mostly of Gentiles, although it included just a few believing Jews. We can identify with that because our church is made up mostly of Gentiles, but within our ranks are a few believing Jews. Thessalonica as a city in the first century was approximately the same size as Little Rock. It had a population of 200,000. Today, it's one of the few ancient cities still remaining and flourishing. And there's a city of 300,000 now. But at that time, it was a city of 200,000, just like our city. It was a religious community. You could drive right outside Thessalonica and you'd be confronted with Mount Olympus. Now, some of you who have studied Greek mythology know Mount Olympus plays a very significant role in Greek mythology. It's where all the Greek gods resided. There was Zeus and Apollos and Hermes, and Hades, and Aphrodite, and Eros, and all the rest. 
And they grew up, these Thessalonians, in a very conservative religious kind of community. It wasn't the Bible Belt like us, but it was the idol belt. And there were plenty of idols to go around for everyone. People worshipped those idols. Thessalonica was also on a major freeway. It was like I-40, except it was called the Ignatian Way. And close by was a smaller city nestled just a few miles outside of its borders called Therma, so named because of its hot springs that it could enjoy the citizens from time to time. You are beginning to feel a little kinship with this letter as we start. In fact, if 1 Corinthians, as many believe, could be aptly retitled First Californians because of the extreme and excessive lifestyle of those people in both locations, though spread 20 centuries apart, I believe as you open up this letter of 1 Thessalonians that we could call it First Little Rockians because these people have a much a similar style and flavor as what you find in our community today. And some of the issues that they face and struggle with and wanted to know more about are the same that we struggle with and we need to hear about as well. So this is a good series to open up the summer series. Now, let me give you three reasons why, in opening this letter, this church was such a first century smash. Why it uh, made such a powerful impression, not just on its city, but in the whole region in which it resides. The first was this. The first was, as to location, they were strategic. Now, I mentioned they were on the Ignatian Freeway. At this time in history, there was no city in the ancient world that can compete with Thessalonica as a strategic spot, both economically and militarily. It was a very key city in the ancient world. It was prime real estate. Thessalonica was the squeeze point between Europe and Asia. You might even turn back in the back of your Bibles if you want to look a map and just pick it up because you see where it strategically is placed between east and west. All of the west had to go through Thessalonica on the Ignatian Way to get to the east, and all of the east had to go through Thessalonica on the Ignatian Way to go to the west. From an empire standpoint, it joined the whole Roman Empire together. It was the hinge point, both economically as well as militarily. But for our consideration here this morning, from a missionary enterprise standpoint of a young, fledgling Christian church, it was essential to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's much like if you wanted to find a strategic point to send the gospel to Arkansas, a good place to start would be right in the center with all the freeways leading to every part and every corner of the state. If you wanted a church to really impact, you'd start there. William Barclay, the historian, sums it up well when he says of Thessalonica, it is impossible to overstress the importance of the arrival of Christianity in this city. If Christianity settled in there, it was bound to spread east until all Asia was conquered and west until it stormed even the city of Rome. East and west converged at the city of Thessalonica. Now, the historical account of how this church that you're going to be reading about in this letter how it actually came to be is found in Acts 17. You might just jot that down and you can refer to it later this week. It'd be good for you to read that account. But what you'll find there, it was not easy going for this church to be birthed. And Paul and his companions really wrestled in their time there. And by the time they left, there was a wide variety of people who made up this very vigorous church. 
Acts 17.4 mentions three diverse cultural groups. It says that there were Jews there, now Jesus-believing Jews. There were God-fearing Gentiles who had moved from idolatry to the worship of the true God. And then it mentions and a number of leading women. Isn't that interesting? That when Luke would record in Acts 17 what the church was made of, he picks up three groups, Jews, Gentiles, and a number of leading women. And I think that last category is most interesting for two reasons. The first is that there is a mistaken impression by people again and again that in the ancient world, women had no leadership positions. That they were downtrodden, and submissive and without any kind of rights in this ancient world and Christianity just heaped more oppression on them. Yet the reality is, is that you can see right in the Bible this expression of the number of leading women that were in a part of this city. When Jesus' ministry took place during the time He walked the, the roads of Palestine, a number of leading women accompanied Him around Israel. And that's interesting to me, that they would respond to the gospel, which brings me to my second point. Evidently, these leading women did not see the gospel that Paul preached or that Jesus preached as incompatible or antagonistic at all to the true rights of women. Just the opposite. They saw in the gospel the full embrace of femininity. And by these leading women coming to know Christ, they now provided a strategic feminine voice in the community of Thessalonica. This church was strategic. Secondly, as a church, the Thessalonians were energetic. And I think you get a flavor of that in verses 2 and 3. It says, as Paul prays for them, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, and constantly bearing in mind, listen, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. You can kind of feel the energy there, can't you, of this church? They were a moving, energetic, laboring, working church of people. In verse 2, Paul says he's constantly giving thanks to God for all of these Thessalonians. And uh, when I read that, I said, now do you think Paul really meant that? you think he was always constantly giving thanks for these people? Or is he speaking, as they say, evangelistically? You know, kind of how we do when in our exuberance over a person that we, we meet up with that we haven't seen in a long time or somebody's about to leave on a trip, we say, and I'll be praying for you, brother, or I'll pray for you. I find that people start using that until it becomes like an address rather than a reality. And that's not right. Because the Scriptures tell us to speak the truth in love. And yet sometimes I know it's easy to overstate reality, especially spiritual reality, and to exaggerate. Reminds me of the uh, MC who kind of went overboard in uh, introducing a young man by the name of Mickey Hilton, as in Hilton Hotels. And he was at a banquet and he was introducing Mickey and he gave a rounding kind of uh, introduction and then finished it by saying, and our guest speaker has recently made over $1 million in Los Angeles in the baseball business. And uh, Mickey went to the platform kind of chuckling. And as he got up there, his opening words were, well, not exactly. And then he said, it wasn't me he was speaking about, but my brother, Baron. And it wasn't in L.A. It was in San Diego. 
And it wasn't baseball, it was football. And it wasn't $1 million, it was really only $100,000. And he didn't make it, he lost it. <laughs> we can over-exaggerate. Paul, though, I don't think is over-exaggerating here. He said he was constantly giving thanks, and I think here's why. Because these believers were making a powerful impression on him. He saw their strategicness and their energy, and that would thrill any Christian leader, and he was calling for more. That's why in verse 3, he kind of describes them with these, what I call, three amigos of the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. You see it there in verse 3? You might circle those three words. Faith, hope, and love. He'll describe it in greater detail years later in 1 Corinthians 13. But in their faith, he saw that they were working. Faith works. Faith without works is what? Tell me again. Dead. It's dead. And what this means to you and me is that if we say we have faith, and yet we were to look at our life, and the fruit of our life was basically barren. I mean, we were basically just doing the same things that we used to do in the same old ways with no impact, with no work in us that would be visible and tangible to the people around us. We have some big questions to answer. Because faith without works is dead. They had a faith that works. They had a love that was laboring. Do you see it there? And by that, I think he was expressing, as he'll expand later on, to their fervent love for one another. To be in Christ is to be a lover of people. And the reason for that is because people are the only thing that will abide forever. And the Christian understands that, and he understands the sacredness, the absolute sacredness of the person next to you that the person next to you is an eternal being of glorious ramifications. And any attention that you give in enhancing the development of that person for eternity is a supreme pursuit in life. Notice they had hope too. Their hope was steadfast. That is that it wasn't something that the first time something went wrong, they just kind of gave up. They got disappointed. They quit. No, they had a hope, a real hope. And let me tell you, hope causes people to do amazing things. I don't know, did you see the article in the newspaper this week where it offered the, the illustration of the Japanese lieutenant? His name was Hiru Onoda. Hiru, when the war was over, didn't know the war was over in the Philippines. And you, if you saw the picture of him in the paper today, for the last 30 years, he's continued to fight in the Philippines for the emperor of Japan. And what they had to do, they couldn't get him out of the jungle, so what they had to do, they had to look up his former superior officer, who was by that time probably selling Toyotas to the United States, and have him come to the Philippines and give orders for Hero to surrender. But you know why he was still fighting? Because up until that moment, he still had hope. And hope causes people to do amazing things. You know where my hope is? My hope is not here. My hope is in eternity, where my commander is. And my commander has ordered me to keep my hopes up until he will appear and tell me, you don't need to fight anymore. Where is your hope? See, sometimes when you lose sight of that hope in eternity, you know what happens to you? The minute you lose sight of it, with that steadfast hope, the minute it's gone, the minute it diminishes, you begin to live as human beings are not intended to live, and that is for now. 
And every time you live for now, you live less than you were created to be. Because you were intended to live forever. And that's where your hope needs to be. That's why as Paul looked at these people, as he saw them, he saw these characteristics of faith, hope, and love. In fact, John Calvin called verse 3 a brief definition of true Christianity. That's how powerful that verse is. It's easy to remember in prayer people who are energetic and excited about the Christian life. It's also obvious that when they're living this way, that they had an authentic encounter with God. And that's why Paul could say in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. He had no doubt that they had really come to Christ because the fruit was so obvious in their life. They were an energetic people. There's a third characteristic that why they were first century smash, and that is these Thessalonians were exemplary. I love that word, exemplary. You know what that says? That says you give off positive energy. When people are around you, they get a lift. They get a standard. They get a reason to keep going because of you. That's the way these people were. And that sweet savor spread all over the empire, the region in which they were, they were in. Now I want to give kind of three very specific ways that they were exemplary. First, it was obvious that they had had a transformation of life. You can see that in verse 5. It says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now I want to focus only on the first half of that verse. The fact that the gospel came to them, not just in word only, but in power. And then it says, in full conviction. Would you circle those two words, full conviction? Because they tell a story in themselves. If you just took the second word, conviction, and you looked it up in a Greek lexicon, you would be shocked to find that what it means literally is full conviction. <laughs> and yet Paul, for some reason, with this word that meant full conviction, took another word, or even a stronger word, and put in front of it, polis, that meant full. So if you were translating it literally from the Greek, it would say that the word came to you, the gospel came to you in power, and with full, I mean full conviction. That's the way it would literally read. We might change the vernacular a little bit to make it more American, and we might say, the gospel came to you in power and with deep, deep conviction. It really got to you. It really stirred your soul. This is deep, soul-stirring stuff he's talking about here in this passage about how the gospel came. It was life-changing. It changed their desires of their heart. It changed the way they would, were going to live. Nothing was too good, too important to give up for the gospel now because of this deep, deep work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts that would alter the direction and desire of that heart. You know, my fear is that it's so easy today to be a word-only Christian. Let me ask you, let me ask you a very penetrating question, just to let you reflect for a moment. How did the gospel come to you? If, if Paul were writing this epistle and he had just you in mind and he came to verse 5 and he says, for our gospel came to you, in word, and then would he attach the rest? Would he attach in power? Would he attach with deep, deep conviction? 
so that your life was never the same in your desires and what you desired was never the same. That's an important question. How did the gospel come to you? I'm not going to read it, but I picked up a letter that I'd written my girlfriend in 1968. This is it. Sherrod. And uh, I was in California. I'd just become a Christian. And I was reading over this letter. And you know what's interesting about this letter? I was 19 years old. When I read this letter, I found that there was no religion in this letter. There was no church attendance in this letter. There was no duty, dry duty. It was things like where I said, I hope I can spiritually grow to a point that for me I never dreamed possible. I found that it doesn't take two seconds for me to become carnal. But on the other hand, I've also found that because of God and His help, I can become filled with God's love and have a life with serenity and peace and joy that only God can give. Turned on the back as I closed and I said, I know that right now I don't really know much about myself when it comes to Christianity. I'm excited to try it though and change certain parts of me that I've always wanted to change and hopefully find the real meaning of life and love and happiness. Then I close by saying, you shared second to God know what a fool I've been and what a hypocrite I am at times. But I will write again soon. You know, when I read that, you know what I saw in that? I saw in that an authenticity of a guy who was laying his life open for Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel came to me. But now let me ask you, how did the gospel come to you? How did the gospel come to you? As a passive belief system or as a radical pursuit of a new life in Jesus Christ. I want you to skip down to verses 9 and 10 because it kind of tells us some ways that these people were turned upside down. It gives us some, some ideas of what actually changed. And now I want to mention three of those. First, when, when they changed, they turned courageously away from their former belief system. Do you see it there in verse 9? It says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how, and listen, and how you turned to God from idols. There was a real change in you. For some, that meant turning away from Judaism. Can you imagine that? For some, that meant turning away from Zeus and all the things that they had grown up with for generations under Mount Olympus. For some, that meant turning away from the idols of power and pleasure and just my personal wants that compromised my life. Those people turned away from those kind of things. They were willing. See, here's the mark of how the gospel came in power. They were willing to turn away. Are you willing? had a young man in my office of a different faith, a different religion. He'd been to graduate school. He'd been around some Christians who had really touched his life. And yet his dad is a very prominent member of another religion. And he sat in my office and he said to me, he said, can I talk to you just, would, would this not go just anywhere? I said, no. He said, I, I, um, what would it take for me to come to Christianity? And I asked him what he meant and what he really meant was this. Would I have to tell my dad? So I opened the Bible and I turned to where Jesus said, no man is worthy of me if he doesn't love me more than father, mother, wife, houses, and farms, and children. No man's worthy of me. 
And he hung his head and he left. There are some of you here who have turned from the dead religious systems of your mom and dad and it was hard, wasn't it? Now maybe it wasn't dead when they were there. Might have been vibrant and alive. But it was stagnating your Christian life and it took a real act of courage for you to turn and join this church and to pursue Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, it was the right thing to do. Not because of this church, but because the pursuit is not a church. The pursuit is new life. A new adventure in Jesus Christ. Notice also they began to serve courageously. The last part of verse 9 says that they turned to, get from God, to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And I say they serve courageously because if you'll go back up to verse 6, you'll see two little words about how they received the Word. It says, in much tribulation. That's why I say they serve courageously. If you go back and read Acts 17, you find that, that when Paul got there and preached the Gospel, the Jews got upset, the Gentiles got upset, a riot broke out, Persecution ensued on these young believers and Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were run out of town. And those people who remained were not just persecuted for a little while, but were persecuted for the rest of their lives. We know from other places in the New Testament that in time, this persecution brought real hard times on these Thessalonian believers economically. I want you to know, you know those leading ladies? They started not to lead anymore. Not in the community. Not socially. They got kicked out of the junior league. They had their homes taken away. They lost their jobs, many of them. The Jewish Christians were soon disowned by their families forever. And yet despite all this, they continued to serve God. How do we know that? Because years later we can read and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you might even just turn over there, a statement about the churches in Macedonia of which Thessalonica was one of those. And just listen to the courageous service that was still going on. Because let me tell you, it takes courage to give up stuff. One of the things that holds some of you back here in this audience is because there are things in your life you just won't give up. They're your toys. And the gospel comes and knocks periodically there, but you can't give it up or you won't. And so what you do is you settle for a life of spiritual mediocrity and you make no impression on anyone other than a mediocre one. But that's not true of these people. Years later, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. You can put Thessalonica because that was one of those. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, that's where they were, it overflowed in a wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, in fact, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Nobody forced them. It wasn't under compulsion. But they took offerings for these other churches. Begging us. Do you see that verse 4? Begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in support of the saints. You know what I say to that? Wow, what a church. You know, the question is, what kind of church we want to be? Because we're a good church. We're not a great church yet, but we're a good one. But I tell you, it will call us all to another standard when you measure yourself against the standard, which is the letters of the New Testament. 
I want to be a great church filled with great people whose faith works and whose love labors and who have hope, not in this life because you'll have trouble, but in the next. Notice that this church gave liberally. Now, the reason they could turn to God from idols and to serve courageously like this is because of a third thing. It's found in verse 10, and that is because they hoped courageously. Notice it says that they were waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These Thessalonians believers, now here's what I want you to hear me. Just You can put it in bold print. They believed in an afterlife. Something that's fading from the memory of the American conscience. They really believed it. They believed that Jesus Christ would return. They believed that heaven and hell were the ultimate realities of this life. And it was this courageous hope that shaped their direction and their understanding of how to live and what to live for and how hard to live for those things. They believed that there was a destiny to life and that Jesus Christ was at the center of that destiny. Now in our culture, listen to our, our, our words in media and print and in the centers of the, the academies of our country and scholarship. More and more they propagate the idea that this life, this is it. This is all that there is. There's no ultimate accountability for anything. No ultimate reward for anything. And one's lives reflect more and more the cruel, practical application of that heinous lie. Because you know what we do? We live for now. And remember what I said? When you live for now, you live at a mediocre level of life. You live far beyond your createdness, your dignity as a, as a human being made in the image of the Almighty Creator to whom will again possess that image of you forever. Or throw it away. History tells us that man always reverts to base instincts when the hope of eternity, the hope of heaven is taken away. He lives for now, and that's a bad way to live. The historian Will Durant put it this way years ago. He said, the greatest question of our time is not communism versus individualism or East versus West. The greatest question is whether man can bear to live without the hope of God. And I say he cannot. He can't do it. These Thessalonians had a powerful transformation of life. They renounced the idols of the past. They were embracing the living God in a vibrant present. And they were waiting for Jesus Christ to provide a glorious escape from the judgment that would come. And they stood firm in that. And all of that led to them making a powerful impression upon their world. Now I want you to notice the second thing that they were exemplary for. They were powerful role models. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says that they became imitators of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that they became an example to all the believers, not just of their city, but of two regions, Macedonia and Achaia. Now I want you to notice who they became an example to, at least in these two verses. If you'll notice, it's not to unbelievers. Do you see it there? It's to believers people who already possessed a faith, but who needed someone to set the standards. These Thessalonians became the standard bearers of the church in the first century. And I want you to know, some church or churches in America set the standards for all the other churches. Did you know that? 
You don't have to be in ecclesiastical circles very long before you realize that there are a few churches that kind of set the pace. They're the pace-setting churches for all the others. They're the ones who become the role models of what the faith should or shouldn't look like, and some of that could be good, and some of that might be erroneous. But there are pace-setting churches. But here's what I want to ask you as just a church body, as you hear that, in your own heart. What kind of church do you want us to be? The leader or the follower? That's a great question, isn't it? Because we're going to be one or the other. We're either going to be looking to other churches to kind of help us get along and set the standards of what the Christian life should look like, what the church should do, how hard it should do certain things, or we're going to become the standard. Because there are churches who set that. They're known in ecclesiastical circles as the teaching churches of America. So what do you want us to be? But then the follow-up question, are you willing to pay the price to get there? Because I think you want to be the leader. And I would hope that what we lead in more than anything else is not size, dollars, or buildings, but what we lead in is authentic Christian life. We really want to believe this. We really want to have faith that works. We really want to have love that labors and care for one another. And we really do want to keep standing firm, believing that whether anybody takes notice, there is a God who does. And I'm banking everything on that because of my hope in Jesus Christ. Finally, I want you to notice they were exemplary because they had a powerful witness to their region. Notice it says in verse 8, it says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth. The word there is what we get our word sonic boom from. There's been a tremendous sonic boom from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we pastors, we don't have need to say anything. Now, isn't that great? You can preach Sunday. They had no need to say anything. The pastors had to go mute because these people were aggressive in sharing their faith. And folks, that's exactly how it ought to be. It ought to be the body who's evangelizing the community with the gospel. These Thessalonians did it themselves. And all I can say is, wow, what a church. In evangelism, in lifestyle, in faith, in courage. But of course, all that leads to one question that begs itself, and that is, what about us? It's a good question, isn't it? What about us? As a church, I want you to know, we are strategically placed. We're an energetic people. But the real question is, are we ready to go to the next level? That's the real question. As a body of believers, are we willing to go to the next level? We've been blessed so much and we've made some impressions, but do we really want to make the Thessalonian kind of impression, the powerful impression? In the fall, I'm going to be sharing with you, because we've just finished up our planning for next year and our ideas, I'll be sharing with you some, what I think are some exciting ideas of how we can do that, but they're just ideas. They don't have any heart. Only you can provide the heart. But you know, there's one thing you can do right now that you can take to heart out of this passage, and that is that this summer, would you think of one person or family you could sound forth the gospel to? Just think for a second. Is there somebody around you in your neighborhood or in your workplace or that's a friend that you could say, you know, I may not do anything else this summer, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin to pray for that person or that family 
And I'm going to be a Thessalonian type person. And I'm not going to let anybody else do it. I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to sound forth the faith in their life. Now, wouldn't that be something? You could double the whole size of the church if everybody here just reached one person in this next year. That'd be the greatest evangelistic church, by the way, in America. If everybody here didn't do anything else the next year except you just reached one person in such a way that they were enthusiastic about the Christian faith. Let me tell you, that would be a sonic boom in this community. And then there's the question, what about us as individuals? Would you like to make a personally a powerful impression for Christ? Then there's just two things I'd want you to take with you this morning. It comes right out of the text again. What is one thing that you need to give up that's holding you back, not the church back, but you back from the next level of spiritual life? And let me tell you, you have to be courageous to bring it and to let it go. People maybe have talked to you about it. They've said, you know, that's, that's keeping you. That's keeping you away from the real thing, the authentic thing. And you've heard it in different ways. People may not have confronted you with it, but they've nibbled around you in conversation. What is it that you need to let go of to take the next step? Because let me tell you, when you get there, you'll never regret it because I've never regretted the next step. I've regretted other steps, but never that step. And then finally, what is one thing you could do this summer for the service of the kingdom of God that would make a difference, positive impact, a spiritual impression on someone in this body in particular, somebody that needs you, somebody that needs your gifting. Remember, faith works, love labors. That's the Thessalonian way of making a powerful impression. You know, people have asked me from time to time, do people in heaven see what's going on on earth? Do they see what we're doing? I've often wondered that myself. You know, if my, uh, my parents or grandparents or people of faith and my heritage are looking at me, and I have to tell you, as I look in the Scriptures, I can't answer that question, not with assurance at all. But you know, if they are, if they are, if they're looking where we are from the standpoint of a whole new perspective of what eternity means, and they're kind of settled at that point, but they're looking at us with all the seductions and temptations around us, but that we decide we want to be more than just a church. And we take those steps, wouldn't it be great to have them up there going, wow, what a church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this opening of this great epistle. The epistle that could be aptly named the letter to the Little Rockians. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us take that to heart. I pray that this morning there might be one thing that somebody grabbed onto who doesn't feel compelled to do anything except the pressure is from within and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and it's Jesus Christ, the living and true God, calling you up, because everyone here is strategic, calling you up to make a powerful impression. Help us to do that. Help us to be that genuine, excited kind of people. People of faith and hope and love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.